Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Danny Kwa. I am Professor of Economics and Co-Director Global Governance here at the LSE. On behalf of LSE Global Governance and the journal Global Policy, welcome everyone to this evening's public lecture by Branko Milanovic. Branko, as many of you will already know, is lead economist at the World Bank's Research Division in Washington, D.C. This year, he is visiting fellow at All Souls College, Oxford. More important than any of these things, Branko is one of the world's leading experts, if not the leading expert, on global income inequality. And it is a genuine treat to have Branko come here and speak to us on what he calls a brief and idiosyncratic history of global inequality, or more properly, his new book, The Haves and Have-Nots. Now, at this point, um, if I may have, if you've got a mobile phone, could I invite you to either put it on silent or on vibrate? Because as you know, events like this one at the LSE are recorded. And it is hoped that a podcast of this evening's lecture will be available online not long after this evening's event. And it would probably not be very good if your easily identified Lady Gaga cell phone <laughs> ringtone suddenly makes an appearance. On tonight's lecture itself, Time was that inequality across people or nations was never worth worrying about. The only difficulty, of course, is that that time was about seven million years ago, when everyone was equally dirt poor, scratching the earth to make a living, and barely getting by. Since that time, alternative panoramas of inequality have characterized the global economy. And this evening, Branko will guide us on a tour of the significant contemporary and historical features of those landscapes. He will lecture for about 45 minutes, after which he has graciously agreed to take questions. We need to end the meeting just before 8 p.m., so we should have Good a good length of time for a question and answer session. Now, before I hand over to Branko, I have to embarrass him a little bit because I cannot resist describing how one of the most memorable discussions of income inequality I have ever had was with Branko himself when we were both outdoors on a Buenos Aires hillside near the tomb of Evita Perón. That time when we had this conversation was not long before the Argentine debt crisis. That time, Argentina still had its just restored peso pegged to the US dollar. And while that currency peg had restored stability to the Argentine economy some years before then, Argentina by then was already heavily indebted to foreign interests, even as the peg, the dollar peg, made cheap 
Argentina's imports and facilitated yet further borrowing by the Argentine state. After 1999, however, the devaluation of the Brazilian real and the appreciation of the US dollar revalued dramatically upwards Argentina's currency against both Argentina's rival exporters and its consumer markets. And with the sharp decline of its exports, Argentina's economy slowed, shrank, and eventually collapsed. Capital flight and nationwide bank runs ensued. Income inequality and poverty both in that economy rose dramatically in the years after the crisis. Today, of course, currency and trade wars and sovereign debt problems are things of the past, things that we don't have to worry about. It's okay to laugh, even though we're sitting in Europe. The world has changed dramatically in the decade since that Argentine debt crisis. As with these other problems, income inequality continues to be a policy issue and research topic of great relevance. The Argentine example I've just described illustrates how external financial and international relations affect not just inequality within a country, but also influence a nation's relative performance against yet other countries, and thus influences cross-country inequality, topics that Branco's work has helped all of us understand better. Now, both before and since my discussion with Branco by Evita Perón's tomb, whether he and I have been in Washington, D.C., or here in England, or elsewhere in the world, I have had the immense benefit of a first-hand education on income inequality from one of the world's leading experts. And I'm delighted to welcome Branco to LSE this evening. I look forward to both his presentation and the question and answer session afterwards. Branco, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Danny, for this uh, beautiful uh, introduction. Uh, when uh, you mentioned uh, Buenos Aires and Evita Peron, I could not remember uh, the, all the details. I was a little bit worried had I said something which was inappropriate or wrong, and then I was happy that the, the, com the comment did not go in any such direction. Uh, and of course, I'm very grateful to Global Policy for inviting me. I'm very grateful to LSE for being a host here. And of course, since I've been in London and Oxford, rather, as Danny said, for quite six months by now, I, have, I feel almost I should thank each of you individually because I was so impressed with the number of talks and things that you can sort of every day, practically every hour attend, that I believe that having one or two people to listen to your lecture is already a great treat, and even more so when you have quite a few people. Now, I'm going to try, as, as Danny said, I will speak, try to speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, and um, then I would be very happy to, to have you ask me questions, because obviously one of the pleasures of somebody who works in an area is that you know, people are somewhat interested in what he does. 
So uh, I will um, try also to convey, if I may, if I succeed, something of the excitement of this area, because I do believe that inequality, and particularly global inequality, is an area which is really a relatively new topic. It's new because until globalization, and even technically until we had household surveys from most countries in the world, we really could not even do any empirical work on that. So in other words, it's new for two reasons. First, in order to do some work, you have to have data, which means you have to have household service for most countries in the world. And secondly, your mind has to be attuned to that. And your mind, one's mind, was not attuned until really this era of globalization. Now, because I know that also very many of you, or some of you either, I hope not very many of you, some of you might actually have to leave early, I have decided to give you a very brief sketch of the book. Now, the book really has three essays which deal with three different types of inequality, each of them important. The first essay is about inequality within nations. That's what we are most familiar with. It's like inequality in the UK. We know that it's much higher now than it was before Margaret Thatcher, for example. That's that, this type of inequality. The second is inequality between countries. And that's the type of inequality that also we are familiar with when we say that Moroccan incomes are less than sp uh, Spanish incomes. We're really meaning the average income in Morocco is less than average income in Spain. The GDP per capita, which is an average number, is less in Morocco than in Spain. So that's my second essay. And the third essay really combines these two and looks at global inequality among citizens of the world. As you can sort of intuitively feel, the third is already a combination of the two. But with, uh, after each of these essays, which many of you might read or might not want to read because they're a little bit sort of more demanding, I illustrate each type of inequality with about eight to 10 vignettes, stories from literature or actual life, which make it, I believe, more accessible and easier to read. So what I plan to do today is that I would actually like to start with some key messages from the book, because I'm afraid, as I said, some people might leave early, and I don't want them just to leave with the impression that they're only fun vignettes. Of course, I like to tell you that they are fun vignettes, because I hope many of you would buy the book, but there is more in a book than simply fun stories. There is really a, a, a message, and there is, I think, an important um, an important uh, uh, discussion of inequality today. So let me start. This is, as you, as you might have read, this is the epigraph of the book. I have here two quotes, uh, one from David Ricardo, very famous quote from, 19, from 1817, The Principles of Political Economy, where he says that really questions of distributions are the core issues in political economy. And then we have very often a modern-day approach to this, which denigrates the importance of inequality and says the most seductive and the most po poisonous is to focus on questions of distribution. So really, we have two very different uh, uh, perspectives. I am not going to sort of judge which one is right or wrong. I just leave this to the reader to decide. So now let me go uh, briefly over this overview, where I actually have only three slides, but I think these are important slides, and I hope that you would actually, uh, if you take anything from this, other than the vignettes, I really would like people to take, sort of remember these, these slides. Now the first one I call the mother of all inequality disputes, because, I will explain it in a moment, because it is, it, you will see that depending on what type of inequality we want to look at, 
we will actually have a judgment, pass a judgment, that globalization has increased inequalities or has reduced them. So let me show them. First, on the vertical axis, you have a Gini coefficient, which is the measure of inequality. So the higher it goes, the more unequal the world, in this case, is. Uh, and on the right hand, on the, on the vertical, on the horizontal axis, excuse me, you have years, obviously. Now, this is the first concept of concept one of inequality is the one when you take the average income of all the countries, which is GDP per capita, and simply calculate a measure of inequality, the Gini coefficient, across them. Uh, for many reasons that I will not go into, we really start with 19, early 1950s, and in the 1960s, with, uh, with the, de the decolonization, the number of countries that are included there increases. As you can see, that concept, which really measures inter-country inequality and does not take into account at all the number of people who live in each individual country, that concept stays more or less flat until 1978-1980. And 1978-1980, I argue that in this book and the other book, really represent a sort of watershed years. I will not speak much about that today, but you know what happened, that it was the, the debt crisis, increasing real interest rates, and the quadruple increase in um, oil prices. And then after that, you really have an increase in inequality measured this way, just simply across the countries, only across the countries. No people are involved there. So each country comes with one observation. And then, as you can see at the very end, that's important, after 2001, you see a decline of that inequality. Now, this is what economists call divergence, when incomes of the countries diverge. And then you see towards the end a convergence, beginnings of convergence. Now, this very divergence has created many problems theoretically for the economics profession, because we were not expecting that divergence would occur at the same time as globalization progressed. Um, I will not discuss all the reasons why it happened, but it clearly was one of the problems which led to the creation of what is called endogenous uh, growth theory or uh, um, new growth theory, which tried to explain the fact that incomes of the poor and rich countries have diverged between around 1970 and 2000. But now there is a different concept of inequality, which I call concept two which takes also this GDP per capita or mean income of the countries. But that's one thing which is not done in concept one. It gives the importance of each country depending on its population size. So if, for example, and as you see how that concept goes down around, starts going down even in the 80s, but certainly in the 90s, Big countries like China and India now will determine to a large extent how that concept moves. Because China and India, as you know, start as relatively as actually very poor countries. And then as their growth rate increases and they become less poor and move towards the middle of the income distribution, they start driving that concept down. So now, as you can see, we are already approaching something which is like global inequality because the number of people included here is everybody in the world. And particularly, as you can see, over the 1990s and 2000, that concept to inequality goes down. Uh, I don't show it here, but 
uh, you can uh, calculate that until about 2000, it was China single-handedly, alone, that was driving this concept down. Because as China was progressing through the ranks of income distribution and had lots of people, it was reducing uh, international inequality as measured by this concept. After 2001, we have the second engine of growth, which is uh, India. So this is what happened with concept two. Now, concept three is the global inequality between world citizens. That's the one that I mentioned before, and that's one that we really want to calculate. But for each of these uh, dots, you have to have 100 or 120 or 130 country surveys. Some of them are very large, like uh, Indonesia, where I have microdata, or NSS from India, which include 400,000 households, half a million households. So behind each of these dots stand probably something like 10 million people with their incomes. Uh, you cannot do it for every year because countries don't produce household service every year. But I want just to sort of emphasize the point that something which looks really rather trivial as this dot requires enormous amount, not only of work, but not only my work, but the work of people who have put this service together, 120 or 125 service together, and defined income or defined consumption. And that's why we have, we have them only at five-year intervals. And as you can see, they don't show much of a change. They are very, inequality is very high. The level of inequality, which is 70 Gini points, is higher than probably it ever was in history. And I'll show that in a second. And it's higher than any individual country. South Africa, which is probably the most unequal country, has a Gini of 60. Now, I, I guess, because my la last data that I have is from nine, for 2005, I would guess that because of what happened most recently, with high growth rates of China and India si since 2000 in particular, with sluggish growth in the West, in the rich world, I believe that we can sort of guess, we cannot estimate because I don't have the data, but, and we will not have 2010 data until probably 2013, but we can guess that for the first time there has been probably a decline in global income inequality by maybe one or two or two and a half Gini points. These are the Gini points that you see on the top and currently the, the, uh, the, uh, the overall inequality is 70 Gini points. So this is what, what are the three concepts. And it is really the third one that we are most interested in because it really takes the whole world as a single entity, like as a single country, and calculates inequality across all individuals while acknowledging the fact that people in poorer countries face lower price level and then consequently $1 in India would be valued, one greenback in India would be valued more than in the United States. So the price levels are included in this calculation. Now, uh, this is a picture of today's world. Now, we want to go into the countries, and that's my second of the three slides that I want to present in the beginning. And this slide tells you the following story. On a, a horizontal axis, I divide the U.S. population into 100 groups from the poorest to the richest. Each one is the percentile. So the people on the bottom are the poorest in the United States. And then I look at them, and that's shown in a vertical uh, axis, where are these people in the global income distribution? As you can see, they are around the 60th percentile, which means that the poorest uh, group in the U.S. is richer than about 60% 60 of the people in the world. So they are really relatively high up 
in the global income distribution, even if within United States they are, of course, poor, actually the way by far the poorest. And as you go up in the US, or I could have UK, or I could have any other country, and I will actually show you one striking feature in a little bit later, that, of course, graph goes up, the line goes up, and the richest Americans are, of course, also among the richest people in the top one percentile in the world. Now, what is the situation with India? Here is India. Despite the recent growth, India, when you do the same analysis, obviously will have the poorest people in India being at the bottom of the world, but the richest people, admittedly a large group, because here I'm talking about 1% of Indians, which is 10 million people, they are just, they are better off than the poorest Americans, but as you can see, they're really not reaching very far up. Now, I'm sure people would ask me what happens to the uh, Indian billionaires and others. I can tell you they're not included in service. I can already tell you that right now. And it's not only them, you know, Bo uh, Bill Gates is not included, and Bramwich is not included. So they're not there. So they might push things a little bit higher, but the essential story, I think, is very compelling here. You have poor countries where even the rich people are just barely above the level of rich countries, poor people. And then, of course, I have other countries, and I'm not going to discuss them because the, the main story, I think, should be already obvious. And uh, one country that I always like to present is Brazil, because it's a microcosm of the world. As you can see, Brazil spends the entire distribution from the very poorest people in the bottom percentile of the world to the very richest people in the top percentile of the world. And you know, if all the countries had the same income, and they had the same distribution, they would all be a 45 degree line. So they would be all the same. So in some sense, Brazil, as they say, is mimicking the world. It's not as unequal as the world, but it's mimicking the world. You can then compare also, see that actually that about 60% of Brazilians are better off than the poorest Americans. So you can do that obviously with many countries. But the point of this story is that there is this large gap between mean country incomes and large gap between uh, distributions in poor and rich countries. Which then leads me to the last third slide that I would like you just to uh, sort of take away from this lecture before I move to vignettes. And that's that this particular feature, which is that most of global inequality is explained or is due, I want to say explained, quote unquote, explained by differences in mean country incomes was not something which, is, uh, which has always been the case. 150 years ago, at the time of the Industrial Revolution or before, and even after the Industrial Revolution, gaps between countries were much smaller and gaps of, peoples, of people within a country were much larger. So most of inequality was due to what I call class. In other words, it mattered a lot in what class you were born or where you were in your national income distribution. And it, did, it mattered as well in what country you, you lived or where, what, whose citizen you were, but it not, did not matter as much as it does now. So this glass graph illustrates this really remarkable change in, in drivers of global inequality. For the from the situation where it, what it really mattered was class in which, to which you acceded or where you were born in your country and 
locationless, we now have a world where locations, location, which means citizenship, matters a lot. Now, it has obvious political implications, which I will just hint to. Uh, you could actually imagine that in 1870, when Marx was writing Das Kapital, the idea of cross-country proletarian solidarity made sense because most of inequality was due to class, and if you were poor in country A and country B, your income was relatively similar. But nowadays, it's more difficult to see that how that idea would make sense if poor people in rich countries are manifold richer than poor people in poor countries. So it has one political implication. It has also a huge implication about migration, to which I will uh, come in a, in a few minutes. So this is really my introduction, and this is the, the story of the book, which I hope people would um, sort of retrieve from amongst the vignettes, because all of the things that I've shown here, they are in the book as well, but they are sometimes sort of hidden in the more fun uh, parts, which are the vignettes. Now, in the vignettes, I will uh, uh, address three vignettes. One is uh, the first vignette which opens the book, which is, of course, favorite of many people, and I've presented this before, and since I always had a very good response, I decided I had really to put that vignette as number one. Uh, if you want people to actually enjoy the book, uh, you have to start with that. And the vignette represents uh, a contrast inequality in uh, uh, at least in uh, Jane Austen time, the Pride and Prejudice, with inequality today. But now what I've just said to you before, how class was much more important then than today, is something that you are now going to read into this vignette. So this vignette is not going just to appear as a fun story about Pride and Prejudice, but it's going to tell us something more. And of course the story here, for many of you I think that is quite well known story, is that Elizabeth starts uh, when, when the book opens, she lives in a relatively rich, quite well-off family composed of, of um, father and mother and five daughters. And they are actually, we know that because when the book takes place, although it was never said in the book explicitly, but we know it takes place around 1803, maybe 1807, we do have income distribution for England and Wales then. And their income, as uh, uh, Jane Austen gives it, places Elizabeth's family in the top 1% of the English income distribution of the time. Now, Mr. Darcy, who has 10,000 pounds, we can place him in the top one-tenth of a percent. Now, you can already see the huge difference between the haves and what George Bush called the have-mores. The, because the gap between Elizabeth, which, who is living overall when you take the family's income, at less than 500 pounds a year, and Mr. Darcy, who lives at 10,000 pounds, is humongous. It's huge. But in the income distribution, as we know, income distribution increases, increases, increases with your percentiles, and then shoots up very highly. And that's where Mr. Darcy is. Now, the downside of, uh, of uh, Elizabeth not marrying him is that she might end up with 50 pounds per year, or not marrying anybody in the case that she loses the family estate. Now, that seems, as you remember from the book, as some horrible fate which, which seems so bleak and uh, so horrendous that cannot be envisaged by her mother. But that fate was a median income of England and Wales at that time. 
So Elizabeth would not go back to the bottom. She would go to the median. But if you're first percentile, you don't like to go to the median. <laughs> and that means that if you do this calculation, you actually find out that the advantage of marriage in the case of Elizabeth was 100 to 1 in terms of her income. In the case that if she were to not marry Mr. Darcy and not find a, you know adequate suitor and husband and lose the estate and marry him. Uh, because I assume with 10,000 they would divide the income equally um, between uh, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth. And then I say how would it look now and use the UK income distribution uh, individual data today and you can read the, the amounts which are actually amounts at that particular point of income distribution today like uh, Mr. Darcy equivalent would be making something like 400 pounds disposable income after paying taxes and that would be 400,000 pounds per capita in a family which means that if he were with a wife uh, let's suppose they would have to have 800,000 pounds of disposable income, really quite, quite, quite a huge sum, but still the odds are 17 to 1 rather than 100 to 1. So this is what the vignette illustrates, um, that really the, the, there was a shrinkage or shrinking of national income distributions despite what happened over the last 20 or 25 years. So I will now go very f quickly over the next vignette, which is actually a continuation, the, I mean it's really follow-up vignette, I was also quite proud of this one. As you can see, it is from uh, Anna Karenina. And the story there is very similar. It is not really noticed very much, but it's very similar in terms of gain. Uh, Anna, when the story opens up, lives in a palatial house with her husband, who is very rich, and whose income is given in the book. It's divided by three. You see this number three there, because Anna, the husband Karenin, Mr. Karenin, and uh, son divide that income and in household service we assume they divide it equally but Count Ronsky is many more times richer than her husband he's also younger and he seems to be much better looking <laughs> so the gains are really enormous uh, they can be expressed in monetary terms as economists tend to do and this is what I have here and I compare that to the situation of Anna before her the first marriage be, I mean actually before the marriage to Karenin and in some sense you can see that she has traveled the entire uh, upper portion of the Russian income distribution in 1875 and that has led to an increase in income of 150 times and despite the fact that inequality in Russia today is extremely high, again we have household survey data and the gains for an equivalent Anna Karenina today would have been still substantial. We know that many women are very interested in marrying oligarchs, but they don't enter the survey. And if I just look at the top one-tenth of a percent in Russia, of course they have huge incomes, but the gain is still 19 to 1 rather than 150 to 1. So these two stories, as I said, illustrate what I said before, but you know, I actually have here a small graph which basically shows the same story that you have seen. You see that how that line of gain really goes very steeply upward as you, and this is even more steeply for Anna Karenina if you uh, make the, the right decision. Now, being an economist, I could not resist doing a trade-off <laughs> curve. 
between inequality and what I call marital bliss or love in marriage. And I start here with Anna Karenina, 1875, very high inequality in the country and very little love lost for her husband. Then I moved to Emma Bovary, which is not, who is not in the book, but I actually liked having her here. A uh, little bit less unequal distribution and a little bit more love, but not much more. Then we come to Elizabeth Bennet. Uh, UK, uh, England was more equal than France, and Elizabeth loved more uh, Mr. Darcy than uh, Emma loved uh, uh, Mr. Bovary. Although, of course, my wife and I don't agree. She wants actually this dot to be placed much more highly. Uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, I actually have one sentence even that I, from uh, Jane Austen that I interpreted that uh, she really is not quite sure how the whole thing would, would work out. And then I was actually wondering, do I have any other examples? As you can see, I found only one. And very few people remember this, this person. He's a man. Actually, I was very happy to also have a, a man who marries a richer woman. And it's from The Tender is the Night from uh, uh, Scott Fitzgerald. A very nice story. And, um, I was, and then I tried to actually fill the upper portion of the curve and started looking at equal countries. But I don't know much about the Scandinavian literature, and people tell me everybody is unhappy in that literature in Ibsen, <laughs> and it's a not a good example uh, for marital bliss. Then I'm also familiar with socialist literature, but they all seem to be about, uh, about politics and about gulag and so on. So again, there I could not come. But if some of you have some idea, please do help me fill a dot on the top. It needs to be a very equal country, and husband and wife have to be in real deep love. The second vignette that I would illustrate, uh, tell you is the vignette about the three generations of Obama. Now, that one is illustrating the differences in mean country incomes. But first, it starts with inequality within country. Now, believe it or not, but in his book, which is a very nice book, uh, The Dreams from My Father, he mentions, and it's the only number I think mentioned in the book, he uh, mentions offhand when he f that he found the small booklet, which is called Worker's Booklet, where the salary of his grandfather in 1928 in Kenya was written. And it said, actually, he was working as a, uh, a manservant to a British uh, gentleman in Kenya. And even the, the note said that he was not, the grandfather was not worth uh, uh, 240 shillings a year that he was paid. So I had this 240 shillings uh, number, and then by serendipity, really quite extraordinary, I had also, because I work on old income distributions now, and I had income distribution for Kenya 1930. And I was actually then able to find in where an income distribution would have been the grandfather. Now, the interesting part here, you see this is the income distribution starting from left. These are the poorest people, and then to the right are the richest people, and these are approximately their income, their incomes. Now, in a in colonial times, what was interesting is that if you were even at the 90th percentile, like his grandfather was, you were still barely above subsistence, maybe twice the subsistence. But the very, very top was enormously rich. So really, I thought it was a good sort of a story, a good illustration of colonial distribution, which I actually find in many other countries as well. I find it for Maghreb, I find it for pre-independence India, for Java, for Nueva España, and so on. But in this case, I had a nice example of Obama. So that was how the distribution was 
than in colonial times in Kenya in 1928. You could be at the 90th percentile, but you would be still very, very poor and much, much poorer than the people in the top one percentile. And this is the, the reason, I will just skip that, it's actually that Kenya shared, as I mentioned before, uh, the, uh, shared uh, very high inequality. All these dots which you see here are countries that are colonies that have pushed its inequality to the utmost level. So Kenya was not special, it was simply like any other colony. Now, what was the next part of the Obama story was about his father. Now, the father, as you know, came to the United States in 1960. But what was interesting there is the decline or, of Kenya average income or, or what you can call dashed hopes of independence compared to the rich world. So this was when Kenya became independent. Kenya's per capita income was something like 6% of the US per capita income. Uh, when it was colony, it was even higher. It was almost 7% at that time. When his father died in 1982, Kenya's average income compared uh, as share of the U.S. declined below 6%. And then when his son became president of the United States, Kenya's income was only about 3% of the U.S. income. So this is the, the, this divergence that I've illustrated before. Countries, particularly in Africa, and also Latin America and Eastern Europe, have become relatively poor compared to the rich world. And this is, I think, a very good example of that. But it's also a good example of what uh, I quote from Obama, where his mother decided that his future lay, lied in the United States rather than Indonesia, where he lived. And one of the reasons being, as the mother said, is that, of course, his uh, life chances, his opportunities were much greater if he were an American rather than if he were an Indonesian. And this is the theme of immigration, which I see really being derived from the original, from the, or the, the finding that today most of income inequality is due to the differences in income, uh, in mean incomes between the countries. It is a theme that I actually call uh, the citizenship rent, the fact that actually the uh, uh, people in rich countries who are born in rich countries receive, if you were, a rent or a premium from that birth that those who are actually born in poor countries don't receive. In other words, they have, a, they, 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 they receive, if you will, a, a, uh, uh, what is the opposite of premium? Not punishment, but they uh, uh, they actually they uh, uh, they lose because of, of being born in in a poor country. Uh, so this is the 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 third vignette is the vignette with which I would like very briefly to illustrate two types of geographical inequalities. Now it is not very well known, but today the European Union. 27 has about the same level of inequality like the United States. Europeans feel very much like they live in a society which is much more equal than the US, which is true if you take each individual country. But if you take EU 27, you have about the same level of Gini coefficient like the United States. But the difference is that there are different types of inequality in the EU and the United States. So I'm not going to read through each of these graphs. I only wanted to show you here that inequality in the US 
goes from 34 Gini points to 45, which is very high level of inequality, but in the European Union goes from 24 very equal countries to 38. In other words, countries like UK and Portugal that are unequal in Europe, if they were states in the United States, would have been relatively equal states there. So we basically, the state level inequality in the United States, it's much higher than country-wide level of inequality in Europe. And this is sim simply the same illustration where the dark color simply shows you high level of inequality. As you can see, each, almost each, almost all Europe, uh, American states are very highly unequal and only a few European countries are fairly unequal. And the, I will skip this because we are lacking time, but, but let me show you the, the basic story here is the following one. This is the, the European countries' Gini coefficients that range from very equal countries on the left to some unequal countries on the right. Now, how does it look? This is the average level of inequality in the, in the EU 27. How does it look for the United States? As you can see, it's a very different story. All of U.S. states are very unequal. They practically don't overlap at all with European countries. But the overall inequality, and this is this line, the blue line, the overall inequality is the same. Why? Because in the case of Europe, the dominant type of inequality is the fact that EU27 now has poor and rich countries. So it is really inequality in the EU27 is a geographically based inequality, where you have poor people in poor countries and rich people in rich countries. In the US, it's not a geographically based inequality because poor and rich are more or less evenly dispersed or distributed across the United States. So what I illustrate here is that in Europe, you start with an average per country inequality, which is relatively moderate, but because countries are very dissimilar in terms of income with the Eastern enlargement, then you actually end up with a very high inequality overall. In the United States, you actually start with relatively high inequality by state, and the agglomeration of these states does not really produce much higher inequality for the United States as a whole. So that's why both end up with 40 40, Gini of about 40 plus. And then it raises the issue, and I will actually stop here with the vignettes, it raises the issue of what is the uh, future of the European Union. Because if you were to include all of Southeastern Europe and Turkey, the European uh, uh, Gini coefficient would start looking more like Latin American Gini coefficient. So is there some limit to the enlargement of Europe, which is induced by very highly unequal geographical distribution or unequal geographical incomes between the countries. It is true that actually the European Union has shown that poorer countries can actually catch up with the richer countries, but as you can see here, if you look at this last column over there, the 60% almost of total inequality today in EU 27 is caused if it, by differences in mean country incomes. In the United States, it's only 20. So the, the fact that there are these two types of inequalities means also that you have really to follow very different policies, because 
In the American type of inequality, poverty is an individual attribute. In the European type of inequality, poverty is a collective attribute. So that becomes uh, a much more difficult problem to solve. I have a story also about China, where actually China has features which are very similar to EU 27 type of inequality, because coastal provinces, of course, as you know, have become much richer. The urban-rural gap in China is very high, it is three to one, rather than, for instance, in India being two to one. So the inequality and poverty become geographical characteristics, much more than only individual characteristics. And since I'm actually running out, running out of time, I wanted to just finish with, I'm going to skip lots of uh, really cool graphs, but I want to uh, finish with one uh, question, because I think it's a nice wrap up of this whole theme, which is a question of uh, whether really global inequality matters and what political philosophers, in particular Rawls, have to say about it. So this would be my last, uh, uh, my last uh, um, uh, uh, part, because as I said, I, I have here quite a lot about the citizenship premium and migration, but I have to skip that, but maybe we will talk about that during the, uh, the Q&A. Uh, First, I want to say that I see global inequality as uh, being important for two reasons, other than reasons that we might actually want to have a more equal world. One of them is because it means, and it's driven by the fact that there are many countries which are poor and which have a slow rate of growth. And the second point is a political issue of migration which, as I said, I see as part and parcel of that unevenness in development between rich and poor countries. And the third point is a political philosophy point of justification or justice of, uh, or rather, I it like that, unequal opportunity between people depending on the, cities, depending on the citizenship of the country that they, are, that, they, that they have. Now, Rawls, who is a probably the most important political philosopher of this and the previous generation, interestingly, does not really care about each, either of these inequalities. And that's interesting, and I like to use Rawls, because Rawls is generally associated with a very liberal and left-wing view, particularly from a theory of justice, where he argued that any inequality is justified only to the extent that it makes the absolute position of the bottom better. Now, why does Rawls, in uh, his subsequent book, The Theory, uh, the, uh, the Law of People, of Peoples, why does he come, uh, not against that, but why does he have a somewhat different theory? And some people believe inconsistent theory. Well, he actually believes that divergence about which I've talked before, which means difference in outcomes and growth rates between the countries, does not matter because what matters is that countries have liberal institutions. It might matter only if there are such burdened countries, that he calls them, which cannot accede to liberal institutions because they are very, very poor. But once they have liberal institutions, their poverty per se does not matter. And he moreover believes that wealth and poverty uh, at individual level and at a community level are not really important or primary goods. What matters is really political freedoms and ability of people to cooperate together and not wealth. So that's why he's not interested in 
divergence of incomes between poor and rich countries beyond a certain point, as I mentioned before, only before, beyond the point where you don't have uh, countries that are burdened by their really huge poverty to be able to have democratic institutions. And global inequality between individuals is simply irrelevant if really the background conditions of justice, which means that every country is liberal or what the other type of societies that he would also accept that uh, that, uh, that would be uh, decent societies, which may not be democratic, but they would be consultative hierarchies. If these two societies exist, this is all. We really don't care whether there is huge global inequality or not. Uh, but within national inequalities, from what I just said, from what he says in theory of justice, should be minimized. So then, uh, I just want to, this is a quote from Rawls, but I, I don't need to, to read it, but I just want to mention that in this view of the world, for roles, there is no global optimum as such. Global optimum is simply the summation of national optima. In other words, if each society has become liberal and democratic and has reduced inequality so that it is compatible with best, highest income for the poor, that summation of society produces global, globally just society. So there is no global justice. And that's, I think, a very important point. Now, when we know that, we ask the following question. And this is what I'm, I will finish. Is we say, OK, well, today we have both that people within countries have different incomes. And countries are either poor or rich. And what is the Gini coefficient today? I mentioned to you that's a measure of inequality that can go up to 100, theoretically, when the entire income is taken by one person. But number 70 is an extremely high number. It's a number that is higher than South Africa, as I said before. It's a number that is twice as high, almost, as UK inequality. So this is what it is today. Now, according to Rawls, if all countries' inequality in, in each country would be reduced to such a uh, on a, a sort of fathomable extreme that everybody would have the same income so that the genius would be zero so everybody would have the same income in the UK everybody would have the same mean income in France and so on we would still end up with 61 genie points of total inequality and this is the point that I mentioned before even if under such extreme assumptions you still would have left more than 80% of global inequality intact because the most uh, important factor is uh, differences in mean country incomes. So now go to the other extreme, say as be economists believe that actually all incomes of the countries would converge and each GDP would be the same in the entire world, but the distributions would remain as they are now, then we would end up with a Gini of about 45. So these are the, uh, I would say, illustrations of what we can sort of the extremes expect. This is what we have today. This is what the Rawlsian world would look. And this is what the world of convergence would look. And then, of course, there is a world of Shangri-La, of Nirvana, when, of course, the, the genie is equal to zero because all mean incomes are the same and all people have the mean income of, of their country, which is, of course, the same of the, uh, of the, uh, across all the countries. So, and essentially, the, the, uh, the reduction of global inequality and the reduction of what I call the citizenship premium or citizenship rent is possible in two ways, I think. And I think these are really the conclusions or the less or 
policy issues of the 21st century. Either a slow and sustainable way, which is higher growth rates of poorer countries, which is a way which I think many of us would prefer, or a fast and possibly politically tumultuous way of increased migration, which we know is one of the ways that global poverty and global inequality would be reduced. So in essentially, and I leave this last sentence, either poor countries will have to become richer or poor people will move, will move to rich countries. Thank you very much. masterly um, summary of the state of the world in income inequality. Now, we've, we're going to move to the question and answer session now. And Branko, since you have additional slides that you might want to talk about, um, you can either take the questions here or take them up there. But before we begin, um, what I would like is there are roving microphones that are going around. So before you ask your question, please wait for the microphone to get to you. When you get the microphone, please identify yourself and say where you're from. And please try and make your question a question rather than a complimentary lecture. Uh, one of the really nice things about the LSE, of course, is that everyone is, is extremely knowledgeable and well-read, and we all have strong views that we want to test against you. But in the interest of this evening's discussion, please make it a question. Uh, Branko has taken us through his, his book and his views about global inequality. He's given us many lessons to think about. Among them is how location trumps class in the modern world as an explanation for inequality. And embedded in that is the idea of how we should be thinking about the death of <coughs> solidarity across any idea of an international proletariat. It is countries and locations that will matter. He's used this to help us think about the European Union versus the United States, where inequality across these two large groupings overall is about the same across the two of them. But the EU is unequal because it has poor countries and rich countries and the United States is unequal because it's got poor people and rich people within states. He's used this methodology to take us through a history of Barack Obama's family against a background of uneven international growth and development. And towards the end, he used Rawls's political philosophy with its seeming internal contradiction on treatment of inequality within countries versus inequality across countries, and he's used the data and the models that he's put together to help us think about the political and economic and the overall welfare significance of these alternative interpretations. And of course, I do not forget that he's used his ideas to help us think about Emma Bovary, Elizabeth Bennett, Anna Karenina, and a whole vignette of possible other stories that you can put together in a telling, a modern telling of love, marriage, and infidelity set against different patterns of social inequality. And they think that romance is dead. 
<laughs> so, um, questions. What I would like is to take questions in groups of maybe three or five, and then we can um, have, a, have Branko respond to them. Questions? Robert, right in front. Thanks. That, is this on? Yeah. Th that was a masterful lecture. Um, I have a very simple question. What is your response? What is your answer to Robert Lucas's um, uh, quote that you put up right at the beginning where he said the most poisonous uh, concern in economics is a concern with inequality or, uh, in the words of Willem Boiter, who was until fairly recently a professor of economics at LSE, who said in the Financial Times in 2007, poverty bothers me, inequality does not, I just don't care. What is your answer to those two propositions? Okay, another question, up and back. Um, thank you, I was wondering what you thought of Romeo and Juliet in your model. Um, and. <laughs> Um, and I wanted to ask about um, the role of inequality as an incentive for growth, because sometimes uh, inequalities are justified in that way, uh, and whether you either had a model or a qualitative opinion on whether in the benefits of growth from inequalities was ju uh, justified inequalities. Okay. And then in back behind you. Uh, Peterson, a PhD student at the LSE. Uh, the only work I had read on the issue is Sally Martin's on world income distribution. And uh, I was impressed when I, when I saw that his results are that in the last couple of decades, uh, world income distribution per person had declined. So I'd like to ask you, what, how, what are your results compared to his and uh, your methods? Thanks. Okay, I would uh, try to be brief because, of course, I would really love to have uh, other people also ask questions. on. Uh, the first one, well, it, it's, a, it's, it's a, I, I think, an easy one for me because I believe that uh, uh, people who are against uh, studying or study of inequality implicitly are really against questioning of any type of incomes. And they, their approach was that incomes are determined by market and consequently market takes the role of a god. In other words, it's not a social construct. It's actually, it is a god and if it is god-given and nobody uh, must dare, nobody is allowed to dare to, to question that. And I mentioned in the book that I had very similar experience. I worked, uh, I actually studied, when I studied my, did my dissertation, I did it in Yugoslavia on income distribution. And then it was very similar because you really didn't want to study income inequality because it was well known that that income inequality was very small and it should not be studied because whatever existed was for the best. Uh, likewise, in uh, uh, many capitalist countries, we don't want to study, people say, well, we shouldn't study income inequality because it would simply raise unsustainable redistribution ideas. And then we know that's the best because we have a market economy of whatever exists is because somebody else has decided to pay somebody for the service or the good. So why do you want to study that? And also, I mentioned this as well, I was in, in a think tank in Washington when a president of the think tank told me, well, you can do 
whatever you want, but just don't call it inequality. Put the word poverty there, because we have many rich people on our board, and when they see the word poverty, that makes them feel good, because they are really nice people who care about the poor. When they, say, when they see the word inequality, that makes them upset, because you want to take money from them. So this will be my answer to this. On Romeo and Juliet, I haven't thought, but in, you actually, in my story, you also have to get married. So that was, uh, <laughs> you know, infatuation is not enough. It has to have a certain uh, durability. Did I get married? Okay, so I may put them there. You know, I actually I have middle age, uh, uh, I, I have actually the census from, um, uh, Florentine census from, uh, it's actually a huge uh, source, it's called Cadastro, I think from 1455, so I haven't thought of that, but you know, I might use it. Uh, uh, it's a good, actually you can add a dot on my, on my trade-off. Uh, on growth, uh, this is a huge topic, and actually I think Danny is much better placed to answer that than I. I just uh, mentioned in, in, in introductory essay one that the classical idea was the idea that justified inequality in the sense that only rich people would save, saving was necessary for investment, investments were necessary for growth. Much more recent ideas and also empirical evidence, I think, uh, tends to, build, to support the opposite view that very often inequality is uh, detrimental, for obviously for, leads to lower investment, conflict, lack of social cohesion, lack of education, which is necessary, obviously, for, for countries to grow. And finally, there is the median theorem, uh, median Voughton theorem, which also says that more unequal societies would choose very high tax rate, exorbitant or extortionate tax rate, and then that would affect growth. So I think they're both views. I, I tend to be more partial to the latter than to the former. On Salah and Martin, it's a huge topic, so I will be very brief. I don't think that actually uh, his calculations on inequality, but even more so on poverty, are accurate. I think these calculations are based on an extremely small sample of numbers. And just to give you an idea what the, prob the key problem there is the combination of household survey data and national accounts. Now, this, uh, this is a huge topic, but I'll just give you one example. Uh, when I use consumption data or income data from household surveys, this is not GDP per capita because the gap between the two is very large. You have government consumption, you can disposable income on top of, uh, until you get to the GDP, includes investment, includes uh, uh, increase in stock of goods, includes ha uh, health expenditure, education expenditure, and so on, and includes underreporting by the rich and underreporting on lack of participation of the rich. What happens is the following with Sally Martin. He takes the GDP of 100. Household survey gives you, consumption is 70. Household survey, because it doesn't cover fully consumption, gives you something like 60. He says, well, I've got here 40 extra. So what am I going to do with 40 extra? I'm going to distribute it to everybody in the function of what their income was from the survey. Well, we know that it is really the rich people who are underserved. So that 40 that he gives to everybody more or less equally should have been given to the rich in, if you really want the real income distribution. So as I, I wrote that before, I said this is really the only redistribution that many right-wing people would subscribe because it's a paper redistribution. You just take 40, which was part of the GDP and not of disposable income, and distribute this across. 
So in that sense, I think that his methodology is inaccurate and actually surprising that it has actually received so much publicity because it really combines two incompatible sources of data which sh should not be combined. And people, I think, who actually uh, read and, and very highly praised that were probably unfamiliar with either accounting or with sort of data that come from household service. <coughs> Thank you, Branko. Can I uh, exercise Chair's prerogative and re-ask Robert's question on poverty and inequality, maybe in a slightly different way, because the way you answered it, uh, you described your experiences with these, uh, with relatively rich people in Washington, D.C., who had certain views about poverty and inequality. Right. But you described it to say why they prefer to think about poverty, not inequality. But let me give you a different scenario. Suppose that I con confront you with two different societies. One society is very egalitarian, but they are all just a smidgen above poverty threshold, however you want to define the poverty threshold. Everyone has the same level of income, but they're just a little bit above extreme poverty. Take a different society where the average income there is 10 times what this other one is. They have some inequality, but that level of inequality never overlaps with the first society. So I think Robert's, uh, Robert is channeling Willem in this context, rather cheekily, I think. But suppose I were to, to ask the question this way. In your view, which of these societies should we you know, should we be thinking, oh, that's where I want to go live? No, I'm not. Yeah, I would agree. I, I mean, I would say I would rather live in a rich society that, is, that has inequality than in a poor society that is fully equal. Uh, I think as, I mean, take, if I were to take Rawls' opinion, I would say the second, the more unequal society is better because even the worst off person in, a, in that society is better off than 99.9% .9 of people in, in poor society. So I, I actually would prefer the latter society. I, I believe that our concern with inequality is justified despite the fact that we really want also growth. And to go back to your question, I actually think that our concern about inequality is justified precisely because I'm an old-fashioned growth economist. Actually, I would like to have growth. And I believe that oftentimes growth is prevented by inequality. But I also believe, first, that, inequality, that lower inequality would lead to higher growth. And secondly, I believe that the role of higher growth is actually to reduce gradually that inequality by giving the same chance or more or less same chance to everybody. Okay, we'll take another clump of three questions, so up in front here. Thank you for your, is this on? Yeah? Yeah. Thank you for your lecture. Um, my name is Ali Adeli. I'm uh, representing uh, an Iranian think tank, non-governmental, um, called Ravan Institute. I mean, three weeks ago I visited one of the poor areas of, uh, of Iran, southern Iran, uh, Khuzestan, which is uh, a very oil-rich province, but uh, the people are, um, are very poor over there. And what I've noticed is that um, the areas that you went to and, and uh, the more poor the people got, the more limited access they had to um, technology, to um, electricity, and so on and so forth. And the richer the people were in that limited um, um, bracket of, of richness, um, the more they had access to technology. Um, in your opinion, I mean, what is the correlation between the access uh, of people uh, to internet, the freedom of internet, um, and uh, to poverty and equality? Um, I mean, you can see it from 
recent events in Egypt uh, where the first thing that the government did is to cut off the technology, um, the internet access, Facebook, Twitter, um, to, to prevent any kind of communication. Because, I mean, the more people had access to technology in that province that I visited, the more knowledge they had to their surroundings and the more possibility and probability they had to um, get jobs and, 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 and go up this, the social ladder. Thank okay. you. Okay, thank you. Maybe you could just hand the microphone back. Thank you. Um, my name's Chris Cann. I'm a member of the general public. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I was interested in this conclusion because I think there are a couple of places where you could sort of... Uh, this has happened a bit, in, in, and what I mean is when Germany was reunited, you had poor and rich. And so you had the options of high growth rate in East Germany or did people move to West Germany? And of course in the EU, because of essentially free movement of labor, there must be some evidence of what's happened, you know, like Poles coming to the UK or what are Estonians doing? So I wondered if you might comment on uh, if there are any lessons that have been learned from those which, which might apply to, are oh, a lot of Chinese gonna go to Japan or whatever? Thank you. Okay, thank you. And then in back, this will be our third question. Hi, Alex Jack, I'm a master's student at SOAS. Um, I'd like to ask what uh, might be quite a boring question, or seem like a boring question, but how reliable do you think the data is on equality, and what efforts are being made to improve it? Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you again for, for the questions. I'm a big, uh, a huge fan of uh, <coughs> of uh, information technologies. I, I will not go now expose how, what, how great they are. I absolutely believe they are, uh, you know, uh, world transforming in their influence. Uh, in what I'm doing here, I don't have actual data on access to internet uh, or, or information technology by income. That would be very nice data and I've, I've seen people uh, writing about the digital divide, uh, but I think in, it is it enters into my story in an important way to which, which you alluded, and it's knowledge about the way of life of other people. And when I speak about global inequality and I speak about uh, people moving to different countries and migration, I always say maybe today we don't really think much about global inequality, but isn't it similar to the situation that existed, let's suppose, in the whatever, 15th century before the creation of nation states? You have separate people living in separate villages or townships and so on, not interacting very much with each other, so inequality and poverty were, were really totally relative phenomena because you were comparing themselves only to your neighbors. Actually, many people we know that for, uh, from uh, ethnological studies, they actually didn't even know what their country was called and who they were. They actually called themselves like we are from around here. Uh, what happened then with unification national states, you actually start comparing yourself to the income of Parisians if you're from a village, you know, 200 miles south of Paris. And the same thing is I think is happening now, thanks to the information technologies in part, because we can see now much better these income differences. And I think they would be, they would be a further force that would lead people to move and to, to migrate. Um, the second point, it's a very good issue, I mean, point that you raised about West German and East German integration. There are studies, East Germany came in with relatively equal income distribution. Uh, West Germany was more unequal. There was a migration of labor. As you know, the gap still exists. It's substantial. People speak of German mezzogiorno, and the gap is not 
being sort of obliterated, but income distribution inequality in the eastern lander has now increased. Um, however, we know also from the EU experience, I, I mentioned that before, that poorer countries like Greece, Portugal, Spain, and even Italy have, and Ireland, have converged toward the EU mean, and actually in some cases overtaken the EU mean. So I don't have any doubts myself that Central European countries would in 10 or 15 years also converge towards the mean. So that very negative story that I presented about EU enlargement, I think it's a static story today, but it may not look like that in 20 years' time. Uh, the last point, how reliable are the data? It's, of course, it's a crucial point. I'm not after I sort of... Uh, gave all the negative uh, rendition on Saleh Martin's mixing of the data, I'm not going to say that this is really phenomenal, nothing can be improved here. These data have many problems. Not the least of them is the combination, and this is something that is unavoidable, of income and consumption, because many countries specialize, if you will, either or income service or consumption service. Secondly, the definitions of what is income, although we know that it should be disposable income, they really do vary from country to country. There is a huge effort by region, like Luxembourg Income Study, to uh, harmonize the data. So you can actually say that income in UK is the same as income in Netherlands. Now you can compare that income with South Korea as well. But then when you say UK with Kenya, the difficulty already is much greater. Within Latin America, there is also uh, harmonization of incomes, thanks to the work done in La Plata in Buenos Aires. So by region, we have this harmonization. But we have a large gap, and that's a huge gap, and I have to always mention it, is that we don't have microdata for China. Because we have, and I have microdata for practically all countries in the world, but China, which does not release microdata. So this is, I think, the biggest omission uh, and the biggest uh, question about reliability comes from there. Thank you. Okay, the gentleman on this side. Thank you. Uh, David Piershow from LSE. As, as you show on the screen that, that one way of uh, reducing global inequality in, in theory is increasing migration. And, and that might be true if there were some sort of global free movement of labor. But in the past, migration's been uh, of people who predominantly are of uh, uh, high human capital. And um, it can be argued that, that migration has actually served to increase global inequality. I wonder how far you, you've got evidence that, that, that can establish uh, whether it's uh, increased or decreased global inequality. Okay, thank you. Okay, then just across the corridor towards the back, we'll take a cluster of four questions from here. Yes. <clears throat> I would like to know, you see, I was recently in India, and I felt that they, there might be a vested interest of rich middle class to keep uh, 300, 400 million people to get their services cheaply and not strive to uplift them from poverty. Am, am, am I right in uh, judging that? Okay, and then the two questions up in front, and then we'll call it a close on this group. My name is Sikrun Davidsdottir. I'm an Icelandic journalist. Um, I'm interested in policies to counteract inequality. So I was wondering, you mentioned that inequality jumped um, around or after around the 1980. So what is it that we can 
specifically learn from that in, in order to prevent inequality. And then secondly, you mentioned that location is now more important than class. How does that affect the, the ability to, to counteract inequality with some policies? And then just next to you, before we... Hi, I'm Karsten Jung. I study sociology at LSE. Um, two very brief questions. First one, um, systematically, what role does the Rawlsian framework play in your book? I wasn't quite aware of, like, if, is it just to exemplify a potential distribution or is it uh, more systematic? Um, second question, um, in your book, do you give an account of what actually uh, caused the, like, the, the increasing importance of nation as, uh, as opposed to class? Um, you were mentioning endogenous growth theory. Is it just about convergence clubs, or do you give some, some more indication of that? Thank you. Okay, thank you. So we'll take those questions. Okay, so thank you. Uh, the first one was on the disequalizing effect of uh, migration. It's, uh, let me uh, try to explain this. I actually think that it's, it's not impossible, but it's hard. Let me put it like this. Uh, look at this. Uh, okay, this is... This is Denmark and Mozambique, the distributions. It could happen that somebody from Mozambique who is really in the rich Mozamb Mozambican or, uh, or, or um, uh, he comes to Denmark and becomes poor Dane. And it could happen that actually income distributions in both countries become worse, but global income distribution would become better. So that's the thing with, with income distributions. You can have both in a poor country and a rich country, you can have a worsening of income distribution and global income distribution becoming better. Now, I'm not minimizing the importance of possible worsening of income distributions in, in both of these countries. And I'm not minimizing the danger of large brain drain from poor countries to the rich countries, which actually might even condemn poor countries to slower growth. But I believe overall we have seen uh, uh, studies or simulations that show really that uh, if you really want to have a big bang, a big reduction of global poverty is by migration. And I think it's true for, for global inequality as well. I do also come in a book on, uh, in, with some sort of, not my ideas, but some ideas that people have floated that migrants, for example, should be taxed more heavily than the indigenous population, local population, because their main beneficiaries of that are really migrants. I come also to an peculiar idea, which actually there is a vignette, some of you might like that, about football, which argues that we have in football two different uh, systems. One is the club system, we know that, which is basically commercial, and where you have high concentration of winning, because only the teams that have lots of money are able to buy the best players and win. Now, at the national club level, at the national team level, rather, you don't, you have uh, much more uh, historically, you have less concentration now than 50 years ago. And I ascribe that to the following idea. You have a player like Adebayor, for example, who comes from Togo. Well, Togo, if he had played in Togo, he would have been in a small league and would never improve. But the fact that he came to, 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 the, to the premiership, now in Real Madrid, presumably, like we have in, in economics, you learn by playing with better people. So he has internalized some knowledge, which once every four years, he goes back to Togo to sort of uh, share with people there when he plays for the World Cup. 
So I came also to the idea maybe that really immigrants should have as a condition to have a green card or permanent residency to go once every four or five years and spend one year in their country of origin. So I think that you can have certain ideas which would, they seem crazy, but you know, it's not so crazy if you tell somebody you will have a green card, but within the next 15 years you have to go three years in your country. You know, many people, it's not ideal, but they would rather agree to do that than stay, stay at home. Um, uh, on, on India, on class vested interests, I, I don't know. It could be that that's the case. I think what is interesting, what you said, is that we have now a relatively novel uh, class combinations. We have a combination when rich people from rich countries may be actually in favor of uh, migration because they like to have cheap labor or maybe cheap services. But maybe the middle class or poor people in rich countries are against that. So there is really this recombination of class alliances, which I think is something new. And uh, at least for me, uh, I have not paid that much attention to that until I got more into the income distribution uh, part. Uh, third question about the policy, about inequality and the policies. Uh, the increase in, uh, in 1980 was due to the uh, in, in one of these concept one uh, was due to actually uh, three continents, if you will, falling behind. And these are the two continents that were in the middle of income distribution, which was Latin America, which had practically two decades of no growth, Eastern Europe, which also declined, and Africa, which was on the bottom and further declined. So what we have seen between 1980 and 2000 was really a decline of that middle and the bottom. Now, that got reversed over the last five, seven years before the crisis, and actually even now with the crisis, because these continents, in Africa in particular, have returned to, to growth. So this was what, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, what was driving the increases in inequality in the 80s, between the 80s and 2000. And then, of course, the top of that you had, which is clear from the fact that these dots went up very high, you had within each nation state, practically large nations, large, large countries like China, US, UK, Russia, you have had within national inequalities that increased significantly. So that also pushed the dots higher than they would have been otherwise. Now, what is the role of roles? Roles plays quite an important role in my book. I, in, in, the, in the first essay, I really come very uh, sort of squarely on the Rawlsian side in the argument and partly in what I replied to, to Danny's question when somebody asked me, like, what really you believe should be a, a fair distribution. Rawls has a very good, a very strong line where he says uh, that um, um, Every, as a, every inequality which is not to the benefit of the poorest is unfair. So basically, the, the theory of fairness and theory of inequality in Ross are very closely knit together. And I found that quite persuasive. The reason that I also wanted to introduce roles in the global framework was because I was a little bit, I should not say puzzled, but I was a little bit surprised how different in some way his book, although I think it's consistent, but it's different, uh, uh, his global book, the law, of the, people, the law of Peoples, compared to a theory of justice. So Rawls, in my opinion, I mean, it seems to me that he plays quite a big role in my way of, of thinking. Um, 
I'm sorry, what was the, the last one? Uh, 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 is it convergence, I believe? What was the, last, the, the fifth question? I have not... Uh, <coughs> well, what caused the increasing importance of nations? Oh, what, uh, what happened, uh, what uh, caused the greater, great importance, greater importance of nations was first, historically, in the Industrial Revolution, which propelled some nations to very much, to higher growth paths and to higher income, and created, of course, inequalities where originally inequalities are essentially only cla class-based. And that sort of movement, if you will, continued all the way to practically maybe 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Basically, it is China, as I said before, which was the first big country to overturn that development. And until very recently, China was alone. To some extent, you can actually see China as this sole bulwark fighting against global inequality because China alone was able to maintain global inequality where it was. And now uh, we have, of course, India as well. So actually, I'm now feeling much more confident that we might see a decline because before we based all our conclusions on the assumption that one country will continue to grow by 10% a year. But if we have now several, five, six Brazil is coming there as well, I think we can actually feel more confident that actually the, the global inequality might have actually turned its peak, Thank past you. its peak. We, can, we have time for one last set of questions. So perhaps just these two, just these two will be the last question. Okay, three. So we'll have three very short questions because we are pressed for time, please. Thank you. Andrea Kaczewski from the World Development Movement. Um, like um, me, do you believe the system's rigged to keep the rich rich and the poor poor? Um, 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 and by that I mean by powerful institutions. Um, like we've seen the World Bank um, give loans to developing countries so they increase their uh, debt rather than helping them by uh, uh, grants. Okay. So is the world system rigged? Second question and then the final one. The green jumper. Sorry, the green jumper in back. Uh, thank you. Emre Bayram, visiting researcher from the European University Institute. Uh, a recent report, uh, actually IMF working paper, pointed out the role of income inequality in the emergence of financial crisis. Uh, by Kumhoff and Ranciere. And one of the policy suggestions is actually that it might be less costly for governments to reduce, uh, to redistribute uh, compared to the fiscal costs of the financial crisis. Uh, what do you think about this policy suggestion? What do you think, what is the linkage between the financial crisis and the income inequality, both at the national and global level? Thank you. Okay, thank you. And very last question over here. Hi, thanks very much for this lecture. My name is Rita, founder of Virtusec. And my question is, um, what is your view on the inequality and growth rates of Australia? Okay. Um, okay, I will be very brief because we have one minute and 30 seconds, it seems. Is the system rigged? Um, I'm not sure if it's rigged, but I, I do uh, think that, of course, many people like Thomas Pogge, for example, 
or Singer have written that the system is unfair in the sense, and Robert Wade, in the sense that the system systematically favors richer countries because they are more powerful and they are able to impose the rules of the game. I think the system is becoming maybe more balanced now because the emerging large uh, countries like China and India, Brazil, are able to, I think, affect a little bit the system. But I don't, you know, Rick may be too strong a, a word to, for me, but it's unfair, I would kind of I'll go along with that. On, in, on financial crisis and inequality, I have actually I'm fortunate to tell you that, I mean, I have a whole story in a vignette, and which is actually an op-ed piece that I wrote in 2009. They brought in a link, which I believe does exist, be, uh, between inequality, rising inequality in the United States, and the financial crisis. So because it's a little bit a longer story, I would just have to ask you to read it, uh, or maybe <laughs> just download it, or maybe just borrow it from a friend. <laughs> Uh, and the last one on Australia, unfortunately, I don't know much. I know that they had a series of neoliberal reforms in terms of labor and uh, uh, also in terms of social assistance and so on, but um, I, I don't know much about, I cannot really tell you anything more specifically than that, unfortunately. Okay, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to draw the, this evening's session to a close. First, I want to thank the audience for being here and for being such good sports and asking the robust questions being part of this discussion. I want to thank Branko for you know, taking us through such a serious, somber topic, but injecting good sense, good humor, um, a light interpretation, and empirical evidence to bear on this very important question. So perhaps the audience could join me as well in thanking Branko. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.